We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 today. Grab a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I want you to picture this. Uh, We're talking about Solomon as he wrote Ecclesiastes. All of Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and those of his house were pure gold. The shields of his mighty men were made of beaten gold, and his great throne was made of ivory and overlaid with the finest gold. Silver in Jerusalem became as common as stones, and Solomon literally built himself a paradise of pleasure. One of his chief resorts was Etham, and in the mornings were beautiful. He went out in stately progress, dressed in snow-white clothing, riding a chariot of state, which was made of the finest cedar, decked with, you guessed it, gold and silver and purple, and carpeted with the costliest tapestry worked by the daughters of Jerusalem, attended by a bodyguard of 60 valiant men of the tallest and handsomest of the young men of Israel, arrayed in purple, with their long black hair freshly sprinkled with gold dust every day, glittering in the sun." Now, Solomon was what we would say, filthy rich. And a person who's rich knows what he's talking about when the subject of riches come up. And so today, Solomon is going to make us money-wise as he's looked out and has these observations. In this section of scripture we're looking at today, we have the poor. We talk about money, the increase of good things, the rich man, riches and wealth, and the poor man, all of it is in there. And we've been walking through this book of Ecclesiastes, and it's Solomon looking out over life, and he makes some observations. And at times it seems a little cynical, sometimes it seems a little melancholy, sometimes it seems a little depressing. And this week, as I was thinking about it, I've discovered what Ecclesiastes is. You know what Ecclesiastes is? You have just been on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And you see everybody you know, and their life is full of travels and food and accomplishments, and their kids are doing everything, and they're the best and the brightest and the most awesomeness. They're posting all their blessings on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And then you get off of Facebook and you look at your own life, and it's kind of routine, and it's kind of depressing, and you're not having all the fun that everybody else seems to be experiencing in life. Here's what Ecclesiastes is. Ecclesiastes is real life. It reminds us that Facebook is fake, and your life is not fake. It is real. Here's what Ecclesiastes is. Ecclesiastes is life without fish lips and filters. That's what Ecclesiastes is. You know, everybody does the thing. You got to take it from up here, because if you take the picture down here, you see all your chins. You got to take it up here. Just a little helpful advice. That's what Ecclesiastes is. Ecclesiastes is life in the real. We look at life on Facebook. That isn't real life. And so Solomon looks at life and he says, this is it. And we look at our lives and that's exactly how we feel. And so today what he's doing is he's giving us some observations as he's looked on money and and all of the things that he's seen with money. So here's some observations that he gives. We're just going to walk through this section in chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. Here's what he says. The first thing he says is those with the money have the power. In chapter 5, he says in verse 8, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at the matter. You've lived long enough. We still shake our heads when things happen. The psalmist's like, you know this stuff happens. Just don't shake your head. He says, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. What he's saying is this. 
those with the money look out for each other. There's this guy, and there's a guy above him looking out for him, and a guy above him looking out for him. And the people with the money take charge, and the power intimidates the poor. And simply because they have money, they take charge of a province. They tend to be the leaders, and they watch out for one another. So Solomon's very first observation is those with the money have the power. We know that, right? Even justice is denied sometimes. You could just pay the right people and buy the right people off. And so Solomon understands that. So his first observation is kind of what he's observed through the book of Ecclesiastes, that those that there's, a, there's oftentimes a perversion of justice, and those who want justice don't get it. And one of the reasons is because the money it's, gets in there, and it greases the wheels, and it does things that it shouldn't do. But the next thing Solomon tells us is this. Loving money is futile. Look at verse 10. He says this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Remember, over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, that term vanity comes up. Or it can mean futility or it can mean meaningless. Really what it is is a chasing after the wind. You can never catch the wind. It's always gone, and you're always grasping for it. And it's over here, and it's over there. And that's what Solomon says, that when we love money, it's like chasing after this wind. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or or, or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What he says is this, that money, he talks about love. He uses that word in this passage over and over. He's not talking about possession, but he's attacking greed. When we love money, and here's three things he says happens when we love money, because loving money is futile. And first he says the desire for money is insatiable. That's what he says. He says we'll never be satisfied. You know, money can buy us tons of comfort, but it cannot buy us an ounce of contentment. We can still be very restless, and our bank accounts can be full. It's like the pathetic person who stands at the slot machine and drops quarters in after quarter, after hour, after hour. And when the bell rings and the light goes on and all the quarters come out, what do they do? They pick them up and they put them back in and back in and back in. That's what Solomon says. He says it's insatiable. There's, just, there's never a point of enough. If I want more, if I love it, I'll never, ever have enough. The second thing is, he says, is that goods attract groupies. In verse 11, he says, when goods increase, those increase who eat them. In other words, when you get more money, all of a sudden there's more mouths around the table. People just show up. When you were poor, it didn't matter. Now they all come and they all want a favor. And so he says, this is what happens. There's this circle of dependence. Elvis Presley was a dirt poor kid from Memphis, Tennessee. He came with a guitar slung over his back and he made it filthy rich. And it was only a matter of time before people were living off of him and his income that he didn't even know. It's called an entourage. (laughs) We see that with wealthy, famous people. They have an entourage and they don't know half of them. They're paying for their salaries and they don't know who they are. And Solomon says, this is what happens. Goods attract groupies. Listen, if you want a lot of friends, win the lottery. You'll hear from people all over that you haven't heard of forever. And Solomon says, this is futile. Because they're not your real friends. They're just after your stuff. When somebody becomes rich, they suddenly get this band of groupies around them. In verse 12, he says this. The rich person suffers from insomnia. He says, we have all these goods. But he says, what? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. 
Whether he eats little or a little, but, but, the, but the full stomach, that's, that's an idiom in the Hebrew. The full stomach means he has a lot of wealth. He has a lot of stuff. He will not let him sleep. More money, more people. More money, more worries. More worries, less sleep. Think about the guy who's a welder. He punches out at 3.30 and he drives home. He coaches Little League. And when the game ends, he drives home and he sits down and eats a bowl full of chili and a bag of Fritos. He watches TV until the news comes on. And then he gets up and he goes to bed. And within 30 seconds, we can hear him snoring. Why? Because sweet is the sleep of the laborer. The one who is loving money and wants more is worried. And there's all kinds of things to be worried about. And it robs us from our sleep. You know, sleep deprivation studies have showed lead to high blood pressure and heart disease. And so here's the uh, person who's rich, who is stressed out. And they have, what, probably heart problems and they can't sleep. And it's this endless cycle. And so Solomon says this. You love money and you want more and more, but the more you get, the more it robs you of that sleep that comes from peace. Proverbs 19, verses 4 to 7 says this, Wealth attracts many friends, but a poor person is separated from his friend. A false witness will not go unpunished. Many seek a ruler's favor, and everyone is a friend of one who gives gifts. All the brothers of a poor person hate him. How much more do his friends keep their distance from him? He may pursue them with words, but they aren't there. And we get this money and people show up. Listen, the words of Solomon are not the words of a young author who is trying to tell people how to have their best life now. It's the words of an aged, brilliant king who knows what he's talking about. Remember, Ecclesiastes is part of that genre in the Bible called wisdom literature. We can learn from Solomon. We have, remember, two ways to learn things. We can experience them ourselves, or we can learn from other people. It's a lot uh, safer to learn it from somebody else instead of having to experience it yourself. And so Solomon is trying to save us all of this time and energy of learning life's hard lessons the hard way. He says, here's what I, I'm telling you some things. And so he does this case study in verse 13. He says, there's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Remember, under the sun is the other key to the book of Ecclesiastes. What does it mean? It means life here on planet Earth. Not life above the sun, we're in the heavens, those spiritual things, but life here on planet Earth, under the sun. And so he said, this is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by the owner to his hurt. See what he says? The hoarder hurts himself. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, shall he go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Proverbs 23 says, don't wear yourself out to get rich because you know better. Stop. As soon as your eyes fly to it, it disappears for it makes wings for itself and flies like an eagle to the sky. You know what's on the back of your dollar bill? It's an eagle with its wings wide open like it's going to take flight. And that's what happens. Money just seems to fly out of our wallets, doesn't it? 
It has wings, and there it goes. It's a dollar bill today, a five tomorrow, a ten the next day, and all of a sudden, all the hundreds are flying out. And that's what Proverbs says. Money has wings, and it flies away. But the first thing he says is that our eyes fly to it. There is a love and a desire. And so instead of this man's wealth being a source of joy to him, it's a source of harm. And so Solomon says, here's a guy who had it, he lost it, and he's going to die just like everybody else. He's unable to take any of his wealth with him. There was a story about a man who worked hard all of his life. He saved all of his money, and he was a real cheapskate when it came to his money. He loved money more than just about anything. And just before he died, he said to his wife, Now listen, when I die, I want you to take all of my money and place it in the casket with me. Because I want to take all my money with me. So he got his wife to promise him with all of her heart that when he died, she would put all his money in the casket with him. Well, one day he died. He was stretched out in the casket, and the wife was sitting there next to her best friend, And when they finished the ceremony, just before the undertakers got ready to close the casket, the wife said, wait a minute. She had a shoebox with her. And she came over to the casket and placed the box into the casket. The undertakers locked the casket and rolled it away. Her friend said to her, I hope you weren't crazy enough to put all that money in there with that stingy old man. She said, yes. I promised him that I was to put all that money in the casket with him. Her friend said, you mean to tell me you put every cent of his money in that casket with him? I sure did, she said with a smile. I got all his money together, and I took it down to the bank, and I deposited it into my account, and then I wrote him a check, and I put that in the casket. (laughs) We can't take it with us, and we try. Well, we try. And Solomon says, this is a grievous evil. We work our whole life and this greed never is satisfied. And at the end of the day, we're no better than anybody else. We all end up in the same place. And now he gives us a picture of what could have been. Behold, he says in verse 18, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Do you see what happens? Solomon says, here's a sad case study. Person who loves money, who wants more, who's never satisfied, who's chasing the wind, who can lose it overnight. And now he starts to mention the difference is what God now he starts bringing in God. And in this, past, in this section, he said, God has given. God has done these things. And so rather than accumulate uh, and toil to have wealth, to just uh, 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 keep it for himself, it's to enjoy life. It suggests some companionship. We talked about that. Better is, is, is to have two than one and better to have three because if somebody falls down, somebody can help him up. And so God is mentioned four times in this section. And so God, what is, he's doing recognizing God as appropriating wealth and possessions. And it makes a difference. When we see that those things come from God, it helps us to view them differently. Wealth may lead to misery, but if it's part of a contented life and taken from God, it can be enjoyed and it can be appreciated. Listen, 
The greener grass is a myth. We have bought into it. The grass is always greener over there. It's always those things we want. And you know what happens when we get over there? We're not satisfied with that grass either. We're like, oh, this is nice, but there's greener grass over there. That's what, that's what Solomon's talking about. He says it's chasing after the wind. You get over there, and the greener grass, it still needs mowed. And it still needs taken care of. And it's still that thing. And so we're always looking for the next thing, whatever that is. And once we get there, we realize it's kind of disappointing. It's the same thing. And so it's possible, Solomon says, to have wealth without joy. But only when God has rule over our wealth, rather than wealth ruling over us, do we find joy in him. And so he brings God into this picture. In chapter 2, verse 23, he says about people all their days... Their work is grief and pain, even at night. Their minds do not rest. This is meaningless. There's something about a good night's sleep and not having worry, isn't there? Think about those restless nights that you had. What are you doing? You're thinking about things, and you're worried about things, and you're wondering how things are going to turn out. And the Bible tells us over and over that, that the, the uh, sweet sleep of those who trust God, that there's this peace in our lives. And Solomon says it happens with finances, too. We toss and we turn and we worry and we are robbed of our joy. How much? How many uh, time in your life has been robbed of your joy by money? I mean, can we just be honest? A lot of our lives, right? It's just raw. We're, we're worried. Uh, we're not going to have enough. We're worried it's going to be lost. We're worried how we're going to make ends meet. We're worried about this and we're worried about that. And in the meantime, life is going by. And this is the next thing that Solomon tells us. He says that in pursuing more... We forfeit enjoying what we have. Look what he says in chapter 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor. You know those three words applied to Solomon? God came to Solomon when he became king. He says, you ask for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And remember what Solomon asked for? He said, Lord, I want you to give me wisdom so that I can uh, uh, judge fairly and rule fairly. And God says, I will give you wisdom. And because, in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, he says, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, or honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not asked for a long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge, For yourself that you may govern the people. He said, I'm going to give that to you. And so Solomon here in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 uses the very three things that God said he was going to give him. Wealth, possessions, and honor. He says, he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. And he goes in, he talks about hyperbole. He says, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. What good is it, he says, for accumulating all these things and doing all of this? He said a hundred children, and then he says, if he lives, for it comes from vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness his name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. And verse 6, he says, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. It's not the amount of time we're given. It's what we do with the amount of time that we're given. Solomon says he could have a hundred children and live a thousand years over twice. 
Having all of those things, many children in a long life, does not guarantee that we are going to have joy. It does not mean that we are going to have enjoyment in life. A man may live his life in his prime, but die unsatisfied and also unmourned. He says he will not even have a burial. He didn't invest his life in people. He doesn't have people around him who are going to miss him when he's gone. He's been acquiring and accumulating, but he hasn't invested in the life of those around him. And so in pursuing more, we forfeit enjoying what we have. How would our lives be revolutionized if we just enjoyed what we have? When we open our closet doors, if we can close them, usually they're stuffed and we can't get the doors closed, Instead of opening our closet doors that are filled and we say, I have nothing to wear. Maybe enjoying what we have. We go, we're not sure if I should take this car or that car (laughs) and enjoy what we have. I talked to a lady this week and her car broke down and then her husband's car broke down and they were doing all kinds of things and he had to take a lift to get to work and the lift was involved in an accident and then he was in an accident in the lift and she goes on and on. She says, but you know what? I realize we are blessed to even have those things. And in our lives, in their pursuit of more and bigger and faster, we are not enjoying what we have. And then we're frustrated. And Solomon says, this is meaningless. Wealth does not guarantee its enjoyment. But something in our lives just says, if I had more, if I had something different, then I would be able to enjoy it. You know what I found in life is? I take me with me. So wherever I go, there I am. And if I can't be joyful and contented where I am now, I'm never going to be joyful and contented over there somewhere. It's a gift that God gives us today. So Solomon goes on, and he says, working then to fulfill our appetites is endless. He's already alluded to this, but he says appetites are never satisfied. Look what he says in verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is a vanity in striving after the wind. And he says appetites are are never satisfied. We are laboring for them to fulfill them. There's always more. He says we work to fulfill our appetites, but they're never satisfied. We work to eat so that we can have the strength to work, so that we, have, that we can eat. And it's this on and going, overgoing cycle, and it never stops. And the word for appetite is also the word that's translated as soul. It's that part of us. And so what he says is the soul, that deepest part of us, is not satisfied. And he asks these questions, and both of them have a negative answer. Neither the wise man nor the poor man's ingratiating himself, improve their conditions. And he says, what we do is, in verse 9, he says, it's, it's better in, is the sight of the eyes. What he's saying is, it's better to want what we have and not have what we want. If we simply wanted what we already have, that's what he's talking about. It's the sight of the eyes rather than the wandering of the appetite. I want more. I want things that I don't have. Uh, another way Solomon could have said this is this. A Big Mac in your mouth is better than a 20-ounce porterhouse in your mind. That's what he's saying. The pot of ramen noodles on your stovetop. <laughs> is better than the big, fancy Italian dinner somewhere. That's what he's saying. 
He says with our eyes, right? He says we see it with our eyes. Why? Because it's endless. Working to fill our appetites is endless. Has anybody ever been to an all-you-can-eat buffet more than once? Raise your hand. Why'd you go back? Because you got hungry again. And it's all you can eat until you get full. And then you leave. And then what happens? You get hungry again. And so we go back. And that's what Solomon says. Is that working to fill our appetites is endless. The all-you-can-eat buffets don't shut down once everybody's been through there one time. They keep putting it out and we keep going back. Because it's over and over and over and over. Listen, dreams do not fill an empty stomach. Wishing and wanting all that stuff. And what Solomon says is, use your eyes, use your eyes. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Want what you have, not to get what you want. The last thing he reminds us this about money, uh, uh, wisdom for money-wise. He says, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives a few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell the man what will be after him under the sun? You know, no one can do that. No one can tell you, after you are gone, here's what's going to happen. We don't know. We die, and then we're out of the historical stream. And so Solomon says this, we need to accept what is. He says, all that exists has been named. The name was given to someone, and the name speaks of the character. And so he says, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is. What is man? What is woman? We are weak. We are mortal. We are frail. We are limited. And he says, but we, we are not able to dispute with one stronger than us. Who's stronger than us? God. He's the omnipotent, omnipresent one, the all-powerful one, the sovereign Lord. And so what he says is, words cannot affect change. Increasing words does not change anything. I can all day think that if I just think hard enough, then I'm just going to be able to teleport myself somewhere instead of driving the 10 hours to get there. Guess what? I'm not going to get there. Because what has been named is how it is. God has created this type of a universe that we live in. And so Solomon says, at some point, we just have to accept the world as it is. No matter all my dreamings, no matter all the wishes that I have, things are as they are. Solomon is a realist. He says, this is how things are. All of your dreaming and all of your words won't change how it is. Gravity's still gravity. The sun still goes down in the evening. It'll still come up in the morning. That person that doesn't like you still doesn't like you, right? There's just the way things are. And so Solomon says, at some point, we just need to accept them as we are. And what the main thing he says is what we we, we know who we are, but we know who God is. And yet we, we contend with one who's stronger than us. And sometimes we play uncle with God, right? Remember that game? You twist somebody's arm until they say uncle. I have no idea where it came from or why, but we do it. And sometimes you do that with God. God, if I just talk to you long enough and, 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 and just go on and on and on, that I'm going to twist and you're going to say, uncle, I give up. <laughs> Solomon says, that's, that's not how it works. You're the weak one. He's the strong one. You know what God gets us to do? God's always getting us to say, uncle, not my will, but his will be done. 
He's always bringing those things into our life. C.S. Lewis said this, when you are arguing against him, you are arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. Ha! Lord! And they're like, where do you think you got the ability to even argue? That came from the one you're yelling at. And we forget our perspective. So Solomon says, we, we, we accept the world as it is. The immutable laws that God has placed in this world and the things that they, as they are. And he says, then what I'm telling you, here's, what the, here's how the world is. You want more money to satisfy, it's not going to satisfy. You think that by talking and convincing yourself that it's going to satisfy, but guess what? It isn't going to satisfy. You aren't going to change it. Isn't it funny when we want to buy something, we will, we will make all the rational justifications why we should buy it? I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. We will justify it because we want it. And what happens when we get it? We are disappointed because we, we have talked it up so much, there is no way this thing is going to deliver. And it ends up in a yard sale. We end up trading it in, whatever it is. And that's what Solomon says. All those words aren't going to change what is. I'm telling you what is. You love more stuff. It's never going to satisfy. Now, I want to give you three quick challenges. Because in the middle of this passage, Solomon says there are some things that God gives us. And I want to challenge you to claim these gifts in your life. The first one is this. Claim the gift of enjoyment in your life. Some of us go through life with no joy. We're just hating it. And if we're honest, sometimes we're hating it is because of the stuff we don't have or the stuff we want. If we're honest, the joy in our life often comes from the material things that we want or don't have. Now, sometimes it comes from relationships. Yes, that's a part of life. But isn't it true that some of our stress, a lot of our stress, is about the financial situations in our lives? Claim the gift of enjoyment. Solomon, over and over, he says this. You know what? Life under the sun is the, is the pits. It just, it's, it's, it's awful. But you know where the pits came from? The cherries. So you enjoy the cherries in life. That sweet flavor. You get all of that out that you can. And yes, there are the pits. But I want you to claim the gift of enjoyment in your life. He said that in chapter 3. I know there's nothing better for people to, to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift from God. Enjoy ourselves as we're eating and drinking with others. Refuse to allow yourself to get caught up in the greed trap. Don't attach yourself to the dollar sign. You see, our hearts follow our treasure. And our, our love for God. Right? Con, con, the gift of enjoyment. And for some, we just need to claim that gift of enjoyment. You say, well, Lord, what do I have to enjoy? Beautiful sunshine. You have a pulse. You have shoes on your feet. They may not be the best or the be- the latest. God, what do I have to enjoy? There's people around you, right? Lord, but we don't see it. Why? Because our eyes are wandering. We always want the other thing. And so, so would you claim the gift of enjoyment in your life? When you start looking for things to enjoy in life, guess what? You're going to find them. 
Why not, to get to, why not just get together with some friends and just have a, a, a play a game, eat, eat, eat together, and just laugh and tell stupid stories and just funny things? That's enjoyment of life. We take life so serious sometimes. And Solomon says, you know what? You take life so serious and you have no enjoyment. Guess, what? Guess what's going to happen? You're going to die like everybody else. And you're not going to have enjoyed it at all. The second gift is this. Would you claim the gift of fulfillment in your work? It's not always true there's a better job around the corner. Maybe we need to invest more in the vertical dimension of our life than the horizontal. We invest so much in the horizontal, we forget this vertical relationship with the Lord. And maybe we need to invest our riches for God's work. We give generously, and we find rejoicing in our labors that gives us a new dimension. Listen, work is not the end. It's the means to an end. Work is the means to an end. And what's the end? To be generous, to be able to share, to be able to provide for yourself and your family, right? That's the end, but we make work the end. It's just the means to get the resources to be generous. Ephesians 4.28 says, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands. Why? That they may have something to share with those in need. What if we looked at our jobs as the means to be more Christ-like in the world? To be able to share, to be able to be generous. And we don't find our worth and our dignity and our value from our jobs. Claim the gift of fulfillment in your work. My father-in-law worked uh, 38 years at R.R. R. Donnelly's. It was a printing press, and he did the plates that, that they would stamp onto the pages, and he would proofread those. And uh, he didn't go to college right out of high school. He worked at this job. And you know what he always said? This job put braces on my kids. It sent them to college. He was able to support missionaries, and he kept a lot of restaurants in business. <laughs> Why? Because he looked at his job as not the end, but the means to an end. And when he retired, guys from the work came and said, we are going to miss you. Why? Because he invested in the lives of the people. Talk about a boring job. The plates are these big, and you just scan them, and you look for errors, and you're proofreading them. But he looked at it as the, as the means and not the end. And his labor and his sleep was sweet. He got home. And he went to bed, and he snored, and snored very loudly. Exactly what Solomon said. And there are missionaries today, and there are people today who are blessed because he was working at the printing press for 38 years. And you know why? Because it was not the end, but it was the means. We need to claim the gift of fulfillment from our work. We are to be doing something. God has created us to, to give. It's, a, it's the mandate in Genesis to work the garden and do all, right? We, but it's, it cannot be the end. We will be frustrated and disappointment and disappointed. So claim the gift of fulfillment in your, in your work. Third thing, would you claim this? The gift of contentment in your heart. Ecclesiastes 5.18 says, The days of our life that God has given us. Ecclesiastes 6.3 says, No matter how long we live, if we are not satisfied by good things, a stillborn child is better off than we are. He says, If we're not, he says, if we're not satisfied by the good things. He, in, this, in this passage where he's talking about money, 
What does he say if we're not satisfied by the good things? So he's almost making a comparison. Here's money, but here's the good things, and they're not the same. Claim the gift of contentment in your heart. Remember, appetite is that word for soul. It's that that part of who we are. We are always restless, and we are always in pursuit of something. New jobs, new relationships, new things, new whatever. And Solomon says, you, you just claim that gift of contentment where? In your heart. Finders said we're single. We don't want to be single. We're always chasing the thing, right? Maybe we're getting older and, and not sure what to do. We're always looking for the thing. And, 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 and Solomon says, find ways to discover contentment. Timothy says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Timothy just said, Paul wrote to Timothy, said the very same thing that Solomon just said. You can't take it with you. It's not going to go with you. We brought nothing in. We come out and we leave with nothing. But during this life, we can find contentment in our hearts. And contentment means that we don't allow the smokescreen of more to blind our eyes to what we have. There's nothing wrong with wanting something But when that becomes a driving motivator in our life, when that becomes the goal of our life, we will get to that place. And Solomon says, I'm telling you, here's how the world is. You're going to get there, and you're going to find that doesn't satisfy. Then you're going to want to move the goalpost, and you're going to get there, and that doesn't satisfy. And then you're going to move the goalpost again farther down the road, and that doesn't satisfy. You claim the gift of contentment in your heart. And Paul tells Timothy, he brings it right down to what? The essentials of life, food and clothing. If we have those things, I can find and be thankful and I can have gratitude, but I can have contentment. You know what contentment is? That settled feeling of, Lord, you have blessed me. Lord, I have what I need. And Lord, help me not to succumb to the monster of greed. To love, Solomon said, to love money, to love things, because I'll never be satisfied. So, so what is the answer? The answer always is a spiritual answer. And so in the pursuit of more, for real riches, we need to try switching kingdoms. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus was talking about worry. He says, you are worried. you worried about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat and worry about your life. And he says, let me tell you something. God takes care of the birds, and look how the flowers are clothed. And if God cares about plants and animals, he's going to care about you much more than them. At the very end of that passage, Jesus says what? Matthew 6, 33. Look on your notes. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness... And all these things will be provided for you. If I am pursuing, if I am pursuing in my life all of these things, the stuff of life, riches, wealth, honor, and possessions, if I am pursuing all of those life, guess, guess what happens? I, I, I miss the kingdom. Because in the pursuit of that, the kingdom goes by. In the pursuit of that, Solomon says what? Life goes by. In the pursuit of that, I have no joy. But Jesus says what? You seek the kingdom first. And then God will give you what you need. Those things will be provided. That's the pursuit that brings fulfillment. 
Our appetites are never satisfied. Why? Because God has placed in each of us, in our createdness, a desire to connect back with our Heavenly Father. And so He places the desire in our hearts that we are longing for something, and He put that there so that we would find Him. But if we fill that with everything else, we will never be satisfied. And God, over and over, is teaching us, I'm trying to tell you this is not going to satisfy I'm I'm trying to tell you that new relationship isn't going to satisfy. I'm trying to tell you that new thing isn't going to satisfy. I'm trying to tell you that new job, that new house, that new, that raise, that new car, that I'm trying to tell you that's not going to satisfy. What satisfies is me. And you seek me first and I will ultimately satisfy. And then you will find contentment. You see what happens is God is the all you can eat buffet that you only ever have to go to one time because you are full the rest of your life. Jesus told the women at the well, you're going to come back here because you're thirsty over and over and you need to get water over and over. But I'm going to give you what? Eternal life. That spring that's going to well up into eternal life. And when you come to me, I'm going to satisfy the thirst that nothing else can. And you don't need to come back to this well because you're going to be satisfied. Would you claim those gifts in your life today? Enjoyment, fulfillment, contentment. And the only way those things will be realized and the only way those things will be satisfied is by seeking first his kingdom. Seeking first God who provides us with all those gifts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom we see in your word. Oh Lord, we have been there and done that. There are those of us today who have no joy because we are pursuing the elusive more. There's, there's, there's always more and we're never satisfied. And so, Father, we have given up on the joy of life. We just, we just don't like life. And it's going by so fast because we're always looking for that elusive more. Father, the, for some of us, we are trying to fill that appetite that is never satisfied. We just want more and more and more, and it is a bottomless pit. We never get enough of what the world has to offer. We only have enough when it comes from you. And Father, the answer is always spiritual. All of our life problems, the answer is spiritual. It is seeking you first and your kingdom. And then those things are provided, and those are wonderful gifts that you give. So, Father, today, would you help us to realign our priorities? To seek and to find the joy that you give, to find the contentment that you give, find fulfillment that you give. We thank you in Jesus' name.